1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 2. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then verses 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Good morning. Welcome. First one in person. And it's good, isn't it? We go back to our series in 1 Timothy, which we were at before Christmas. So since 1 Timothy last was here in front of us, uh, we've had Christmas, we've had New Year, we've had change in restrictions, change with lots of things have happened, haven't they? But it's good to go back and look at the rest of this um, about how we're God's household and the different bits we are taught from Paul's letter to Timothy. Um, And, you know, we're going to look today at these two sections split. So as Joel said, next week we're going to cover the middle bit just to to try and trick you there. But it it will all become clear as this talks about uh, money. And we think about how the gospel, how God's word, how Jesus transforms our attitude to money. And we're going to learn, aren't we, that as part of God's um, household as God's family as here at Avenue we are called to learn godliness and contentment and to be rich in good deeds so that's what we're going to do today but I've got the money one and when Richard said will you uh, speak in a few weeks time I just went oh that's actually kind of before everything gets started again that'll be fine I'll have loads of time to prepare and then oh it's the money one and isn't money money's great isn't it you know, but what sort of money person are you? Have you got your, your credit cards with you? It's one of the things that's in my pocket, the cards and, and the nectar cards. You get your loyalty points, extra, extra things back on what you spend. Are you a flashy person with money? Are you extravagant? Or are you tight? Are you watching every penny? For the wrong reasons or the right reasons? Are you somebody who talks about money? We're all pretty much, not everyone, but most of us here are British, aren't we? We don't talk about money. We don't want to talk about money. It's, oh, it's a bit 
private, it's a bit personal, we'll leave that to the Americans who will ask you on a train or a plane, how much do you earn? Imagine that. Imagine if somebody came to you after the service today and went, how much do you earn? Ooh, ooh, I'm going to go and talk to someone else. That's a very awkward question, isn't it? We don't talk about money, but we have more visibility with money than ever before. We have apps on our phone that tells us how much money we've spent today, how much money we've got in the bank, how much money we've got in savings or anything else. We can look at that really quickly. But I also wonder, would we be happy? Would we want people to see what's on our bank statements? What would be there? What would it say about us on our bank and credit card statements? What would it say about our spending, about the things that we care about and that we put money about? I wonder if we would be happy for our brothers and sisters to see them, not because of the privacy, but just to see where our hearts are at in relation to the money there. And the gospel should transform, which sounds like our attitude towards money, whether we're poor or whether we're rich. But does our attitude towards money match that of the gospel or match that of the world? And where, where do we make those little compromises to see? And we try and see that all that in this passage and try and hopefully help us in our thinking and praying about that and acknowledge that we get it wrong. But that we have forgiveness and we have a God who wants to teach us and help us to do things differently with money. Uh, and we're going to, I like to sort of tell us, ooh, I've pressed the wrong button there. There we go. Try and tell us the way forward. So we're going to split this into four sections. Uh, we're going to look at the first bit and see that false teaching uh, leads to an unhealthy relationship in the church. You can see how false teaching about money and other things leads to unhealthy uh, and combative relationships in the church, and how that also leads to an unhealthy attitude towards money. How if we listen to false teaching, be that in the church or outside the church, that gives us an unhealthy attitude. But we're going to see there's good news as well. This is a kind of compare and contrast. The gospel... Good news in Jesus gives us contentment in the church as part of God's people. And the gospel leads to generosity and a generous heart within the church. So that's the kind of framework where we're going to go today. Um, and I think it's quite good to get straight stuck in. And we'll look at how false teaching leads to unhealthy relationships. And that bit of the passage again, so the first few verses says this. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a mean to financial gain. So what do we mean here by false doctrines or unhealthy uh, false teaching? Well, it's quite clear there's two bits, isn't it? They don't agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't agree with what Jesus taught when he was on earth, when he taught the disciples and the apostles and us. They do not agree with those. That's a good test, isn't it? Is what I'm being told here, does it agree with what Jesus said? And if it doesn't, it's a false doctrine. And they don't agree with godly teaching, the teaching that accords with godliness, what we see in the letters uh, from the uh, apostles, from Paul uh, and others. If they don't agree with that godly teaching, then it is a false doctrine, wherever it comes from. If it doesn't agree with what's in the Bible, it is false. And what's really interesting here in, in this passage, the way that Paul writes, there's an explicit link 
between the teacher and what he's teaching. So you say that, don't you, sometimes? Oh, it's, I like the person. Well, the person's okay, but it's the stuff they're saying. Here, the person is malicious. The person is false as well. You know, there's something really conceited about this person. They understand nothing. If the false teachers here disagree with Christ, they're, they're, they're not just okay, it's, it's dodgy, it's a problem. And they deviate from the faith, split the church, and then they love money. They have and promote an unhealthy interest in looking for arguments, quarrels, disagreements. Perhaps they're trying to demonstrate superiority or status. You know, there's a temptation for all of us to do this. How many times have you been in an argument or a discussion when actually it became more about winning and seeing that you're the best than actually what you went in to have a discussion about? You want to be seen noticed or be the winner. You need to be right to prove that you have self-worth or you want to put others down, be quick to judge, critical, cynical. And I wonder what that looks like today. Uh, has anybody ever seen Twitter? Because, you know... There's a real temptation there, isn't there? That, that is what's written, is those descent into arguments and trying to be seen to be right. Is that good for us, good for ourselves? Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Twitter's a bad thing, but it's just an example, isn't it? You look at somewhere immediately, people are given the opportunity to disagree and try and be seen to be right. And that's what we do, isn't it? We want to be seen as right, as better. We want to be the one they're looking at, irrespective of the discussion. And these false teachers are like that. It's about them. It's about being conceited, understanding nothing but proving everything. Oh, I'm going to have an opinion on everything and it's going to be right. Perhaps they're in confusing intelligence or cleverness uh, with the knowledge and truth that we get from the gospel. And I think uh, Paul's description in Romans 8 is quite apt here. And uh, Paul says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. There's a difference, isn't there, depending on where we have our minds set. And what we see in this passage is five results from this unhealthy teaching. We have envy, resentment of others, that is. So other people's gifts, other people's stuff, things that other people are good at that I want to be good at, I'm envious of. And actually, that's, that's, as a false teacher, will encourage me in that. Strife. That spirit of competition and contention, that wanting to be seen as the winner that we just talked about. Creating that atmosphere where it's actually about conflict rather than cooperation, rather than coming together as people of God. Or malicious talk, and how easy is this? Gossip, lies, abuse of those who are teaching the true word. But isn't it gossip that gets most of us? Just thinking about it and talking about others and so easily that leads to unhealthy conversation or unhealthy attitude that comes from, not from the gospel, but from false teaching. Evil suspicions of thinking that somebody's got a bad motive, of, of not trusting. As a church family, we're built on trust. We trust one another. We come together in our love of Jesus. And we want to build relationships of trust where we can have open conversations. But if we have evil suspicions about people's motives, unfounded, we can assign false motives, then quite easily that becomes 
A friction, a constant friction, irritable, sniping, snide comments. Maybe it's funny. I'm guilty of this. You think, oh, I'll make a funny comment there. And actually what you're doing is being snide. And it's not funny. It's, it's a result of false teaching. It's a result of understanding that, that by doing that, you might be seen to be better than someone when that's not a true at all. So we get results of false teaching here in the church. It leads to these unhealthy relationships and it leads to envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction. And we also see, though, that it leads to an unhealthy attitude towards money in the church. And that's that last bit from those verses, isn't it? Who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gains. And false teaching and teachers can lead us to thinking that. Can't they? Godliness, if I do these things right, can, can be, or, or the perception of godliness can lead to financial gain, can promote covetousness. covetousness. I knew I wouldn't be able to pronounce that. But the desiring of things above everything, things that are not ours, things that are others, things that we might need more money to buy, or things that we might just need to go and get, and see it as a means to more material wealth. And I'm sure we're probably quite familiar in a way to the prosperity gospel, to thinking that, you know, well, if I pray enough, or if I give certain church leaders or church something, then I'm going to get a reward for that, and not a spiritual reward, but a financial reward, a better quality of life. Or even, and I think, you know, that, that phrase, if you only try hard enough, you can have anything you want. You can't. These things are false. You know, and we see this throughout history, don't we, as the church has got things wrong um, and has used power or the sale of indulgences or many things to promote the idea that you can gain financially or thingy through... Um, through an incorrect teaching. There's also a slightly smaller but still a, a danger that we have um, a, an opposite effect. And we go, well, actually, the idea is let's get rid of everything. Let's have no money. Um, let's have um, austerity or the austerity gospel. As a, a guy, one of the commentaries that I read by a guy called Philip Jensen, Jensen coined this term the austerity gospel. But we've seen that as well, haven't we, historically, where people have got rid of everything, gone to live in a cave or in a thinking taking themselves away from the world with nothing is the answer. But that's not the command here either, is it? We're not promised a prosperity gospel, and we're not promised an austerity gospel either. No, God is a generous God. We see this with Jesus, the miracle of the five loaves and the fishes. At the end of it, there are baskets and baskets of food left over. There's not just enough for everyone to have a little sandwich. There's loads God is a generous God. He gives to us gener generously. And as we circle around and we realise that we get temptations on this on both sides, we can go to different extremes, but really dangerous is that desire of wealth. And we see this again later in the passage, that that still comes round to go, it's a challenge, it niggles at us, we want more. And this is saying that, 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 that an unhealthy attitude could come from the false teaching here that says we will be rewarded with money, financial gain, as a result of the false teaching. That's not what we get. But there is good news. Because within the gospel and the good news of Jesus, 
we get contentment within the church. And this next section, the next few verses, teaches about this. But godliness with contentment is great pain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, have pierced themselves with many griefs. Now this section uh, can be thought of a bit as being addressed to the Christians who are, who are not particularly rich. So those who have very little. And it's kind of saying how we can have contentment, but loads of it is applicable uh, to all of us. Uh, and it, it kind of follows on, doesn't it, from that bit around certain false teachers who felt that godly, repu- uh, the godly reputation was useful as a means of gain. Uh, but this becomes a very practical section on the view of Chris- Christian view of wealth. And it helps us to understand what is really important when we look at contentment or a desire for riches, material riches, worldly riches. But it's, it's an interesting word, isn't it? Contentment. What is contentment? What's the goal here? Now, twice in the passage, we see that the apostle says that contentment is true wealth. You know, he doesn't describe it as, you know, new stuff or new homes or possessions, not a comfortable environment, but contentment. And this contentment, it seems to me, comes from the gospel. It comes from the true teaching. It comes from the opposite of what we are hearing. So it comes from agreeing with the sound instruction of Jesus and agreeing with godly teaching. And it's what godliness means, and the word can mean a number of things, godliness, um, balance or wholeness, a contented heart that comes from God. Of course, whether you are content, whether you feel you've got your kind of fill, depends on how you personally would define contentment. You know, we might think that contentment means getting everything we want as soon as we want it. So I can have anything I want immediately and then I'll be content. And we see that people who have the appearance of that aren't content. Don't we? That's one of the things we see uh, in our culture of celebrity and other things. People who appear to have things are not necessarily content. Uh, and I reflected back uh, as I was preparing. Um, so uh, I'm not going to give you my full history, but I uh, became a Christian in 2005. Um, and so, and I'm quite old. So that meant I spent a, a good portion of my adult life not as a Christian. And I very much, you know, I was not particularly rich or particularly poor. I was nice, but it was all about getting things. So it was all about a plan to advance, to get more. And I genuinely thought that that was it. It was kind of like, right, if I can get a house that I own, then that's, that's the thing. That's going to be really important because I can say to my friends and everyone else that I've got a house. And then I want a slightly bigger car, even if that means I've got to take a loan out to get that slightly bigger car. And then you realise those things aren't important. Don't be wrong, it doesn't stop me having those times when I want them having those times when I fall over. But there's a marked contrast as I looked back kind of what's that, 16 years, 17 years ago, to how I was then, and what the gospel in you does, how it changes your heart in terms of realising what's important. And I think one possible definition of contentment that I read while preparing for today's uh, talk is this, is not having all you want, but wanting only what you have. Being satisfied with what you've been given by God 
That's being content. And the words that, that are used in this letter, uh, when you translate them, they, they mean having all you need, being content with that much, not craving, not desiring, not lusting after more. Uh, but I think uh, the kind of how we, we think of contentment is, is, is really helped by another passage from Paul's letter, this time uh, to the Philippians. Uh, and in Philippians uh, 4, he says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's all done in Jesus who gives him strength, who gives us strength. And because the secret of being content, it's not like a secret you have in the playground or something you've got to go and really have. It's, a secret. it's the mystery of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus dying, dying and rising again for us so that we can be in relationship with him. And we are given that by God. So the gospel of that leads to contentment for us as a church family in the church. There's a reminder um, that we come into the world with nothing and we'll leave with nothing uh, in verse 7. And there's, there's an oft-repeated anecdote. It was probably in almost every commentary I read, but it's, it's real, isn't it? That somebody asks at a funeral, what, what did that person leave? How much, how much did they leave to the family? Well, they left everything. And we see this confirmed in God's word, don't we? We, we? we leave with no material possessions. We come with none and we leave with none. In Job, he says, after his family are taken away from him right at the start in chapter one, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the psalmist also understood this in Psalm 49. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it is wrong to leave provision for family or other things. But it's what our heart goal is in doing. Is it all about building up enough stuff to leave? What do we see as the, the most important thing there? And what Paul implies is that there are some kind of almost minimum things. So... Food, clothing, and also housing or shelter is implied in the words using as, used as well, are things that are needed. They are essential. I want to make it clear, we are not saying in any of this that destitution and poverty is acceptable. It is not. You know, we should be working to alleviate that with our generosity, with our money, with our time, across our city, country, and across our world. That is not okay. We're not called to live in destitution, but we are called to be content. Now, when Paul's writing here, it's a direct application to the situation in Ephesus. And I think he's really defining that, you know, food, clothing, shelter. There are things you will have that are essential needs. But actually with those, the thing you need most is contentment in the gospel of Jesus. And we can fall into the traps, can't we, that, that Paul writes about here. It's quite easy at times. That even if we don't act on them, our heart is quickly turned away. We're told all over the place that being rich, being wealthy, having stuff is the answer. 
And at times it's so easily believed. Every, every time you kind of, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Whether it's a get-rich-quick, whether it's gambling, or whether it's just working and working and working all the time at the de detriment to other things to try and get money. Uh, you know, and it's not necessarily that those desires are extreme. We might not be thinking, oh, I'm going to get a luxury yacht with a uh, hundred rooms on it. No, but it might just be that I want a newer TV, a newer car, a bigger house. And, and these, again, some of those things, a newer TV, a newer car, a bigger house, they're not wrong things. But it's a bit we see in verse 10 when it's the, the love of those above all else that becomes the problem. And it's not a new revelation for, for some of us, is it? In verse 10, it, this is an oft ill-quoted verse. You know, it's not the love of money. It is the love of money rather than money. And it's a root rather than the root, potentially. But we want to make sure that I kind of go, oh, it's not money that's the problem, it's the love, and it's not, it's not the only root, there's loads of roots. There's a danger that marginalises what we're being told here. You know, we can be caught in a tangled web of desires and love for money. That We can become insensitive, insensitive to where our heart is. And we can dismiss our thoughts and our feelings out of hand. You know, we are supposed to work and provide for our families. We are supposed to try and, we are allowed to have nice things. I'm not sure allowed is the right word, but it's about what our objective is. Is it, is it to make money or is it to be a good, faithful worker, using our gifts and our abilities to the fullest degree for the glory of God? In whichever situation we're placed, wherever that is, whatever it looks like. Because, as we said earlier, that desire for more, that expectation that, that wealth will give us happiness can't be satisfied. You know, it says in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Is always wanting more. And that love of money, that love of, uh, of money causes people to wander from the faith. You know, it's talking about people who were believers. And that phrase, isn't it? Pierced themselves with many griefs. That's like impaled. It's like sticking a spear through you. It's self-inflicted. And there's a better way. But that's what can happen. There is a consequence. But we contrast that with the contentment that we are talking about, that steadfast, great gain of contentment because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who gives us strength and gives us as a church contentment. And it helps us to avoid the envy, strife, malicious talk, suspicions and constant friction we read about earlier. Uh, alongside it, we see that the gospel and the contentment brings a right way of behaving regarding money and worldly wealth within the church. So we kind of skip a few verses now. So we come back to those uh, next week when uh, Tother Dan will be talking. Uh, but still now in the theme of money in the same passage, we get this bit here which helps us think about those who maybe have a bit more money, those who are, are rich, and if we think back to that minimum criteria I was talking about earlier, then most of us here will be clusters rich with this. So this is talking to us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, 
Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The issue is not whether one is rich. The issue is how you deal with it. And within this, we have some warnings around not putting our hope in worldly riches or being arrogant, not looking down on those with less, understanding our responsibility. And there's a great parable, isn't there, that Jesus told, and this is my favourite version of it, which is the, the Nick Butterworth and Mick Impen one, um, around the, the rich fool, or the, the greedy farmer, the rich farmer, where he, he has a good crop, but the barn's not big enough. So he builds a bigger barn. I'm going to plant more seeds. I'm going to get more crops. Because if I get just more, it'll be enough. And then it's not enough again. So he builds yet a bigger barn. And he plants more crops. And he builds a bigger barn to store it in. Because it's about how big his barn is and how much stuff he can have. But then the next day, he drops down dead. The bigger barn means nothing. He wasn't able to enjoy the crops that he was storing up. It was all about more the attempts to build a bigger barn came to nothing. The idea of more, more, more came to nothing. And it's important as well, there's not a command in here not to be rich. So Paul doesn't say, don't be rich, give everything away. I think though, maybe, as thinking about this, we should acknowledge that the more we have, Actually, in a way, the risk increases of us wanting more and being dedicated to the stuff that we have. When, when one has a lot, when we have a lot, we potentially tend to trust in the riches instead of God. And so to do that, there are some commands here that help us go, right, how can we steer what we can do? How can we think differently? How can we take actions? And these are commands that are for us. And they're fairly straightforward. Do good. That is, use your money in a way that helps people. It's potentially a bit impersonal. It's not necessarily about immediate. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily involved yourself. But it means using your money wisely to help people to further the gospel. And do it. Don't just talk about it. Do it. Give funds to famine relief, to help the needy, to set up uh, missionary schools, encourage the spread of the gospel, to support missionaries, SIM, to support those in ministry on your local church. Have you thought about your giving lately? Have you prayed through to see you giving to, the, to things that, that need it? Could you give more? Can you make that something you review regularly? Be rich in good dealings. This has a personal element to it more. It employs that those of us who are rich, those who have more than minimum, we need to be personally involved in things that are good and helpful. It's not just about giving the money and forgetting about it. Right, that's it. I've done my bit. But to personally do something, to serve, to be involved. Isn't it comes back to our core values here at Avenue. Everyone involved is part of a loving family. Get involved. Give your time. Build those relationships where we can do good deeds. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. 
There's no worse testimony, is there, in the, in the world if you're a, a rich Christian who's stingy, hard-hearted, grasping at every penny and holding on for dear life. Give, be generous, be extravagant in a way that shows Christ's love, not look at what I've got. Give because Christ gave. You know, we're clear wealth is a precious gift from God. And we, are, we can live lives that are filled with adventure, excitement, joy right now. And that is an abundant life. But there's nothing that can contribute more to that than helping people and using our wealth, whether that be money or time, to help people now. And we as Christians can hold on to that life, which is life indeed. Use our money properly as God gave it to enjoy life and to bless others. You know, he gives us things for our enjoyment, but not selfishly. And I wonder then, with this in mind, what happens if we go back to the questions at the start? What, what our bank statements should look like? Do they look like people who are generous and willing to share, who are doing good and being rich in good deeds? And there's no one answer, is there? To a certain extent, each one of us prayerfully has to work this out in terms of our own situation. This is not a tax. It's not a, this is how much you will give and this is how much you will give. This is our right. If I am content in Jesus and in the gospel, as I pray, what does that look like for us? With a realisation that we leave everything behind for the treasure of the coming age. Now, since we at work, uh, I deal with money all the time. And every month, quarter, and year, to different degrees, I am called to account for, for the money I've made or lost by the board. So I come up, rock up, and I'm made to explain why I've made exactly what I said, why I've made more or less money. And we're all called to account in the future, aren't we, in a much more important way. How we have dealt with our treasures in this world. And how the gospel transforms how we should deal with our treasures in this world. Our attitude towards money should look different, does look different to those around us. You know, we should look forward to that treasure we have in heaven and to the fact that our contentment is not found in those worldly riches, but in the gospel of Jesus. And I think as we kind of finish up, you know, there's a few things that we can help ourselves to think of. Let's persevere together. As a church family, this, this whole section in Timothy, hasn't it been about family? Ask for God's help in not loving money or following false teachers. Challenge each other. I'm not suggesting we bring our bank statements in and fine. I, none of us want to be asked what we earn. But maybe actually in, in a small group of two or three people, you can have those conversations and say, I'm worried about what I'm doing with money. Can we pray about it? Can we help each other? Prayerfully think about your covenant giving. And that might not mean you have to give more, but prayerfully think about it. And decide what's right. Encourage one another. Notice, please, if we're falling into any of those five things. Envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction. That's not what we should look like as a local church. And I don't think it is. But it's so easy, isn't it? Let's encourage one another to not be like it. And let's rebuke one another in God's spirit if we are. Understand we cannot let our possessions get hold of us. Because that leads to strained relationships and that, that risk of impaling, of being pierced and pulled away from Christ. 
but that we have this as a gift and our attitude towards money can be transformed by the contentment we get in the gospel. So the gospel leads to generosity in the church and leads to contentment. And it means that we can avoid the false teaching, the unhealthy attitude towards money and the unhealthy relationships in our church. I think I'll just uh, finish with some words from Matthew's gospel, words of Jesus that they really relate to how we do money. So do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you give us worldly things for our enjoyment, Lord. Thank you more that we have the gospel of Jesus, that we have the good news of him to be content with. Help us as a church to be content, to have that real uh, satisfaction with what we have and with what we have in Jesus. Help us to avoid the temptation and the trials of wealth and the desire for more. Help us to acknowledge when that comes and seek forgiveness and turn back to you, Lord. And thank you that we can be generous, Lord. Help us to be more generous. Help us to be extravagant in our generosity. And Lord, we want to ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.